What's up, you guys? Welcome back to Indirect Message. Boy, there has been a lot going on lately. I have a few announcements to catch you guys up. First things first, I started doing a live stream on YouTube and Twitch every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't caught up with me there yet, um, we've been having a lot of fun, some really interesting discussions, so you should join us. It's just so nice to connect with you guys in real time. Podcasting and YouTube can feel a lot like talking to yourself, so it's been a nice change of pace. Also, after a brief hiatus here from Indirect Message, I have a new batch of interviews that I'm getting ready for you guys. Hopefully there'll be new episodes for you guys every week. Uh, that's my goal. <laughs> but, you know, it does depend on my guests somewhat. All right, my guest today is Dr. David Lay. He's a traditionally trained psychotherapist who has led the national conversation about sex addiction. I met David years ago, and I've enjoyed keeping up with his work. He has some unconventional perspectives that may challenge you. They've certainly challenged me sometimes. But I think they prove very useful in accepting our own sexuality and helping to unpack sexual shame. Because several of the upcoming guests discuss sexuality issues, I'm going to start putting a content notice in the description of the episode, just to simplify a bit. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was trying to remember what, what was the context? I interviewed you for my channel, and then I feel like you interviewed me at one point. I did, yeah. Actually, it was it was some interesting kind of controversy. I interviewed you um, for some videos that I was doing around um, sexual shame, and we talked about these folks who are dedicated um, to fighting sexual shame, then turned around and shamed you. That's I, right. Yeah. How could I forget my epic internet shaming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at this point, I mean, there have been so many for both of us that it all just kind of blends together. Yeah. What What do you find gets people's undies in a bundle about your work? <laughs> um, I think the thing that pisses people off about me is that I apply critical thinking and skeptical questioning towards both the things I hate and the things I love. And um, it, it's interesting because people are always, you know, cheering me on when I'm raising questions or challenging the validity of something that they oppose. But as soon as I point out hypocrisy or inconsistencies in their camp, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I'm now the enemy. Was this as much of a issue for you earlier in your career, or do you feel like it's gotten worse? I so so I, I kind of have sort of two careers. Um, it, it's kind of interesting, and that I um, I'm a very traditionally trained psychologist, and um, for years I uh, you know practiced just in traditional mental health and. Um, back about probably 2007, um, I was clinically depressed. I was banging my head against the wall with managed care, human resources, regulatory bureaucracy, stuff like that. 
And I needed something to sink my teeth into that was self-directed, where I wasn't depending upon other people. I didn't have to work through red tape and stuff like that. And so I ended up um, doing uh, research and then writing my first book about female sexuality and and female infidelity. And um, and I, I ended up catapulted into this interesting kind of role where I was now in the national media and on the national platform talking about sexuality, challenging mental health and therapy fields for uh, embracing a lot of sexual morality and sexual shaming. Outside New Mexico, I can be this kind of provocative questioner. Inside New Mexico, within this kind of industry, I play it really nice and very political. And so that outside New Mexico outlet (laughs) helps me kind of um, uh, fulfill some of those, um, you know, poking the bear kind of uh, tendencies I have. Uh huh. Has has it ever gotten you in trouble? The there have been questions several years ago. I was at the time still a member of the American Psychological Association, and um, I was appointed to some kind of high-level sort of national positions there. And uh, the APA was, you know, was trying to really, you know, encourage and highlight psychologists that are out there in the media and the world, you know, speaking about psychology. And so I gave them the stuff that I was doing, and I'm in the media a lot. I mean, I, I get a lot of play. It was so interesting because they were extremely uncomfortable with um, acknowledging the issues around sexuality, you know, pornography, non-monogamy, kink that I as a psychologist was talking about. And instead, they um, they said, oh, you know, Dr. David Lays was in was in these media outlets talking about addiction. They, they couldn't even talk about sexuality. Um, what? Yeah, the APA is is unfortunately historically extremely sexually conservative kind of organization. Now they've come along. Um, just last year, they established a um, a permanent committee around research and clinical dialogue for um, around alternative relationships and non-monogamy. Um, that's okay. a huge. It's a huge step. Yeah, yeah. Even though, I mean, I was getting more media than any other psychologist in the APA, as far as I could tell, they didn't want to talk about it. That is so alarming that an organization as large as the APA would shy away from sex issues. I mean, it's such a huge part of people's inner lives and their relationships and everything. We as clinicians are really committed to improving our patients' lives. We should be talking about sex and we should be working really hard to help our patients have good sex. Yeah, absolutely. But most people can't and won't talk. But you do. And one of your pet issues, I guess you could say, is sex addiction. Yeah. I feel like every time there's a sex addiction scandal in the media, um, there you are. Right. Laying out the facts. Yeah. So for people who are not familiar with your perspective on sex addiction, can you give us the little 101 rundown? Sure. So um, that first book I wrote about female sexuality, I described this one guy who um, he had blown through three different marriages because he was just desperately interested in, in being a cuckold and watching his wife have sex with other men. And the wives were not into it. 
And, you know, they, this had significant impact on his life, ended his marriages, et cetera. And I, in the book, I just said in passing, it'd be really easy to diagnose this guy as a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addict. And the reason I don't is that it's not in, um, uh, it's not in the diagnostic manual. The DSM, the Bible of psychology. The Bible. Uh, and, and the interesting thing was that um, as I was doing media around that book, um, people were really interested in that, in that, in that one comment. Um, because mm. at the time, there were hardly anybody uh, was willing to question or challenge the validity of sex addiction claims. Um, since the 1990s, you know, uh, we saw, you know, Bill Clinton get labeled a sex addict. We saw um, Tiger Woods, uh, Dave Duchovny, who threatened to sue me, actually. Jeez. Uh, that um, where um, I, I ended up publishing the book, The Myth of Sex Addiction. And every time the media would cover that, they would show a picture of Dave Duchovny. And they would say, you know, Dr. David Lay doesn't believe in, in sex addiction. David Duchovny says he is one. And um, Duchovny's attorneys wrote me this letter saying, look, if, we, if you don't stop talking about our, our client, we're going to sue you. And I said, you know, I, I'm not. It's the newspapers that um, I mentioned Duchovny like once in my book. But the newspapers love to talk about it because of the celebrity feature of it. I, um, I copied my reply to the attorneys, to the editors at the, I think, New York Post that had just recently covered the, the issue. And they called me and they said, can we use this? And I said, sure, that's why I copied you. And um, so they published a story about David Duchovny threatening to stew me for talking about sex addiction. And that went viral. And I got more media press over that for my book than I ever could have been. Can you can you give me who is Dave du Duchovny? <laughs> I don't know who this person is. Um, he's the he was the star of X Files. Oh, uh, I guess that sort of gets at what your perspective on sex addiction right. is that it can be used as a cover for bad or immoral behavior, yeah. a, a bit of a scapegoat. But I know that your analysis of this um, has more dimension than that. Do you care to elaborate? Sure. So. Uh... Claims of sex addiction largely come out of a couple of things. One is folks who get, you know, in trouble for sex and and, and need an out, need an excuse. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, big one is folks who simply don't um, fit the very narrow heteronormative monogamy focused um, uh, framework of what we think is normal sexuality. And the, it's important to recognize that the concept of sex addiction was really introduced into, into literature and thinking in the early 1980s during the AIDS crisis. And so it's not by accident that people who engage in anonymous sex, um, uh, casual sex, and male homosexuality are at the greatest risk of being called sex addicts because the definition, the idea of sex addiction was... Um, really introduced to suppress risky sexuality during the 1980s that could expose people to HIV. Mm. Um, and, and at the time, our, 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 our country, um, United States, went through a very socially conservative shift to the right around sexuality. Under the Reagan era, you know, 70s was, was a very free love kind of time. Under the 1980s, our country became incredibly conservative around sexuality, and, and we're really only kind of now coming out of that period. Mm -hmm. The and so um, so that's this kind of second group of folks that we see get labeled sex addicts, predominantly male. Ninety percent of alleged sex addicts are male. Um, half of them are 
white males who make over $100,000 a year are married heterosexually um, and are religious. And that is the big issue, is that the what the research has shown at this point, and there's been a, just a tremendous amount of research now that has come out since I published my book, finding that the self-identification of sex addict is predicted not by how much sex somebody has or how much pornography they watch. In fact, most sex or porn addicts actually watch less pornography and have less sex than most other people. Um, really? And, yeah. That's shocking. But they feel worse about it. Now, why did they feel worse about it? Because they grew up like you, in highly conservative religious um, religious backgrounds and communities where any kind of non-normative sexuality um, was not only, you know, uh, shamed, but deeply sinful. Um, and, you know, Robert Aaron Long in Atlanta uh, a few months ago, he was the, the killer who um, went to the massage parlor. And, and and shot people and then reported to the police um, after arrest that he was a sex addict and that he had engaged in these behaviors to remove temptation. He had grown up in a deeply religious um, uh, community, Southern Baptist. He had been in religious sex addiction treatment. And unfortunately, the, the these are people who are taught to really hate and fight themselves and their sexual desires. Mm -hmm. the, the interesting and, and paradoxical thing is that the more you try to suppress thoughts of sex, the more powerful those thoughts become. You know, don't think of a naked white elephant, um, whatever you do. And if you do, now you're a dirty, rotten pervert and you should hate yourself. Um, there's research by a guy named Yaniv Efrati in Israel who actually found that um, the, the more orthodox religious a person was, the, the more effort they put into not masturbating and not thinking about masturbating. And the more effort they put into that, the more they thought about masturbating. The more we, the more we fight these sexual aspects of ourselves, oftentimes the stronger, the more taboo, the more powerful they become. Yeah, I've I've always thought of it like a spring, right? Yeah. And you're just pushing it down and down and down and the deeper you go. It's gonna explode back in your it's face. explosive. It's yeah. interesting to me that with the mass shooter, I feel like there was very little discussion about the role of sexual shame there. Yeah. Um there was some and what was really what what I what I thought was really actually kind of unique in that circumstance was that for the first time um, the national response to uh, claims of sex addiction was now raising questions about, is this valid and is the treatment real? And mm. people like me got to say in Washington Post, in the New York Times, that not only is there no evidence that sex addiction is a real thing, but there is absolutely no evidence that sex addiction treatment works. After 40 years of the sex addiction treatment model existing, there is no published research showing that this treatment helps. And mm -hmm. at this point, there is significant evidence that it is likely harmful. It's like conversion therapy. It kind of reminds me of conversion therapy a bit. You're not, you're not the first person to kind of draw that parallel. And, um, you know, and in fact, many 
um, people who used to practice uh, conversion therapy for homosexuality rebadged themselves as sex addiction therapists. Oh and God. they started saying that they were treating unwanted same-sex desires. Um, mm. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to convert you. I'm just trying to make these bad, naughty thoughts about sex with same sex go away because you're really straight. Not, these are just symptoms of a disease. I'm going to help you make them go away. You're 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 right. There's a deep parallel there. Something that I was reading about the biological basis of addiction was that the you know there's a lot of brain scan science that happens with these things and people who consider themselves sex addicts their brains don't look like people who are drug addicts um and some of the researchers that i've read try to make a distinction between a behavioral addiction mm -hmm. and a physical addiction so a, a drug being something that you're physiologically addicted to and sex or porn even which i want to talk to you about as well could be more of a behavioral addiction. What do you think about that framework? Well, there's there's a couple of things in there I'd like to I'd like to unpack or point to. Um, first, you know, I um, I think that we have become addicted to neurobabble. Um, <laughs> you know, we we use language around neuroscience to make our um, arguments and claims sound sciencey. Um, and there's a, there's a lovely book, um, about this, you know, um, I think it's called, um, meaningless rhetoric around neuroscience. Um, Scott Lilienfeld is one of the authors and there is a real manipulation that kind of goes on. The reality is that, um, at this point, there is not a single, um, psychological or psychiatric disorder that can be diagnosed based on brain scans. Oh, and the, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, that there is, you know, um, uh, whether it's depression, anxiety, OCD, any of those. I mean, ADHD, for instance, we still can't diagnose it based on a brain scan. Um, that because there's so much individual variation. And then um, even just over the past couple of years, there's been some some remarkable um, uh, exposure of the fact that fMRIs, functional MRIs, um, actually the, the, the strategies used to analyze those results are deeply questionable. So we've had all this kind of um, language about, you know, well, it's what's happening in your brain. But unfortunately, that dialogue moves us away from talking about the person. Um, there's a deep misunderstanding when it comes to like uh, dopamine, for instance, in addiction. Lots of people view dopamine as uh, like a pleasure neurochemical and, and um, within pornography kind of stuff, you, you know, you'll see these guys saying, oh, you know, I got addicted to the dopamine that was released in my brain when I was watching pornography. And I've even seen guys say, oh, you know, I could feel the rush of dopamine coming on. Thing is these people are critically misunderstanding what dopamine is. Dopamine is a learning chemical. Dopamine is a neurochemical that's released in our brain when we need to learn something, when we need to remember something. The harder it is to accomplish something, right, for to to achieve a reward, the more dopamine released in your brain because it is a measure of your brain basically saying this reward was really difficult to achieve, so I need extra support to remember how I got there. Hmm, I did not know that. The interesting thing is dopamine does not actually feel good. Dopamine is not an opioid. 
there's no pleasure associated with with the experience of dopamine. And in fact, there's some um, there's some studies that indicate that high levels of dopamine may actually feel kind of dysphoric, may actually be um, uh, because. It, it increases a sense of deep, deep kind of concentration and intensity, mm -hmm. right? Again, associated with learning and remembering that doesn't always feel good, right? Mm -hmm. it, it can be a little stressful. Now, people, people try to make an analogy between behavioral addiction, so to speak, sex addiction, et cetera, with drug and alcohol addictions. And they say, well, you're not, you're not getting addicted to the external chemicals like alcohol or cocaine, but you're getting addicted to the internal chemicals like dopamine. So they're, they're making this analogy. And, and, and I am not one. I'm deeply skeptical of most behavioral addictions. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. But the um, with chemical addictions, with, with alcohol, for instance, um, our brains actually stop producing some neurochemicals because our brains start to use alcohol in place of the neurochemicals that our brain would produce. Our, our bodies, interestingly, are kind of lazy. When, um, uh, you know, steroid um, athletes that use uh, steroids and take, take testosterone, for instance, their testicles shrink because they stop producing testosterone because the body sort of says, I don't need to make testosterone. I'm getting it externally, right? So, it, so your body stops doing it. Same in the brain. And what's interesting, though, is if you take alcohol away from a long-term alcoholic, they can go into seizures and die because their brain has become dependent on the alcohol. Nobody in the history of the world has ever died from blue balls if they didn't get to have sex, right? So we're talking about radically kind of different sort of experiences here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, methamphetamine, for instance, uh, you know, creates very significant long lasting changes in neurochemistry and neuro neurological functioning. Sex and behaviors do, but only in a certain way, in the process of learning. Our brains are constantly changing as we learn. Over the past year, our brains changed as we learned how to do Zoom better, for instance, how to spend more time online, um, and our brains changed as a result of it. When we first started doing all this Zoom crap, you know, back last April and Mar and May, it was pretty stressful and tiring. Now, most of us are better doing this for longer periods during the day. Our brains change, mm. but that's the learning process. I, I think it is, is useful to talk about learning and how we learn to change our behavior rather than over-focusing on the behavior. Because when we talk about, you know, porn changed my brain, well, did it or did your brain change as you engaged in that behavior more and you learned that was where you got reinforcement and reward? The... Yeah, uh, the, the, there have been brain scans that showed something interesting that showed that men who watch lots of pornography do actually have brains that look different from people who don't watch much pornography. And there was speculation and there was a lot of claim that see pornography changed their brain. There's a critical piece missing, though, and that's causality. Because what it is most likely the case is that the brains of the people who watch lots of porn reflect the fact that they are people who 
crave sex and like sex and seek sexual sensations seeking out. Um, they're adrenaline junkies. Um, mm. And the brains of people who are adrenaline junkies look different from the brains of people who are not. So it's likely that what we are seeing in these neurological differences is not the effect of pornography, but in fact the cause. They are watching more pornography because they were already made to be a person who liked lots of sexual stimulation. So what kind of people are pursuing porn and, or sex in this way then? Uh, first, high libido people. Um, people who watch more pornography tend to be people who have more sex. Men watch more pornography than women. Female use of pornography is increasing, from, uh, but is likely to never really reach the levels of, of, of pornography use in men. But interestingly, what we see in men that are married is that their use of pornography and masturbation goes up as sex frequency in the marriage goes down. Men use pornography and masturbation. I think it's always important to recognize when we talk about pornography, we're actually talking about masturbation. And we can't separate the effects of pornography from the effects of masturbation. It, it's critical for the research, you mean, because what we're talking about with porn might actually be about masturbation. It's critical for the research and it's also critical for the intervention. Because if you are a person who is watching too much pornography, you think, whatever too much is, and you're trying to change that, you're not going to be successful at addressing that unless you also address the issue of sexual stimulation, sexual satisfaction, and masturbation. Um, I've seen a lot of couples where they are blaming pornography for the a failed sexual relationship within within the couple without acknowledging the guy started masturbating and watching more pornography because the couple stopped having sex. In light of that framing of this issue, do you think that there is such a thing as impulse control problems, I guess? Is, is there a point where it becomes too much, where someone's having too much sex or watching too much porn? Um, or is that all just kind of our subjective... Uh, moralizing about sex that that draws the line. There's a yeah. There's an awful lot of subjectivity in this, um, particularly within the religious community. There are many men who refer to themselves as addicted to pornography who don't watch pornography. They haven't. They might watch pornography once a month or never. There are literally a substantial number of uh, Christian men who refer themselves as porn addicts. Who have never watched pornography. What? How? <laughs> That's bizarre. Because pornography is an idea. Porno what they're what they're viewing them. What they're saying is, I have sexual urges and ideas that I'm afraid of and that I struggle to control. Mm, okay. When it comes to impulse control, um, interestingly, um, for a long time, folks have said that, you know, so to speak, porn and sex addicts, um, you know, report a lot of difficulties with impulse control. However, um, some neuropsych research looked at this and they actually did testing that test impulse control and found that so-called sex addicts have no greater difficulty with impulse control than anybody else. Really interesting. The, it's it comes back it, again. It, it when I hear somebody say to me, "I'm a sex addict," "I'm a porn addict," what they're saying to me is, 
I am afraid of my sexual urges. I, I struggle to control them, and I worry that sometimes I might not, and that I might have consequences for that. Now, the reality is that's everybody. It is, it is a human condition. And when we, are, when, when we are sexually aroused, we become more impulsive. The fact that we get impulsive, the fact that we sometimes have difficulty controlling our sexual desires is human, not a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, the, in, my, in my therapy with folks, that, that's some of the work that I do. And I, I teach people that the more you can accept and normalize your sexual desires, the more you can recognize you are not the only one with those sexual interests or desires. There's nothing wrong with you for having those thoughts or desires. The more self-compassion people have about their sexuality, the more self-control they actually have. Mm. The more we accept that spring within ourselves, as opposed to trying to push it down, the more we are able to integrate that sexuality in a thoughtful mindful and responsible way in our lives. That makes perfect sense. And I think it's obvious from your explanations why this framing could be harmful to people. Um, I'm just continually baffled that despite all of the issues that you raise, people, high profile doctors, quote unquote doctors, like Dr. Drew, you know, keep sounding this alarm bell about sex addiction in the mainstream. Um, it seems to be doing a lot of active harm. Is it just because they're making money off of it? It is, you know, overwhelmingly most sex addiction therapists self-identify as sex addicts. They got into this treatment because they were struggling with their own sexuality. Oh, that's sad. I mean, think about it. Think about all of the politicians and religious leaders who are out there proclaiming the dangers of some sexual behavior and then they get caught engaging in exactly that behavior. Yeah, it, it it breaks my heart, especially when they're gay and they're really trying to be straight and, you know, they're, it's just awful. It's awful. It is changing. They're, um, they're, uh, uh, I can name a number of um, clinicians who used to be sex addiction therapists who have now left the field. And it's interesting you mentioned homosexuality because there was a a real rift and fracture within the sex addiction industry back in 2015 when the Supreme Court, you know, legalized marriage equality. Because at that time, the sex addiction industry was was starting to bring in a lot of religious folk and particularly conservative religious folk. And those folks were now advocating within sex addiction about, oh my God, no, homosexuals shouldn't be able to marry. Well, there were a lot of homosexual sex addiction therapists who said, wait a minute, why not? And as a result of that homophobia and discrimination within that field, a lot of those guys left. There's actually one that... um, I'm pretty proud of. He used to be a certified sex addiction therapist, um, gay, and then he left, and now he's a gay porn star. Oh, wow. <laughs> that escalated quickly. Right. And, and <laughs> I was not I, expecting you to say that. No, I wrote an article. I wrote an article on Psychology Today about this guy. You know, who, who is he? What's his yeah. name? Yeah. Um, you. you I'm, he's asked me not to name him publicly. Oh, okay, okay. Um, he's Very still nice. he is still active as a clinician, 
and is a porn star and he's navigating this really interesting complicated line he he said he said you know i left sex addiction therapy because i realized that it was all about me shaming other people and me shaming myself and Mm -hmm. now he's accepted the sexuality that he used to be really afraid of Mm -hmm. would you say that accepting our sexuality and our needs and our desires is kind of the blanket diagnosis here like we need to as a cultural and as as a culture and as individuals all the things that come with that yeah i mean very much so i mean whether we're when it comes to sexuality basically across the board whether we're talking about issues related to transgender um identity and and issues whether we're talking about issues related to pornography homosexuality it is the shame that is that is that is incurred upon those sexual behaviors or desires that cause harm, not the sexual desires themselves. You know, mm-hmm. if I went to the Middle East, you know, in Saudi Arabia, for instance, and expressed my desire to have sex with other men, I could be publicly executed. Mm-hmm. Right? I could be in prison. I could face horrific kind of consequences. Now, if I was living in that society, don't you think I would kind of hate myself and wish that I could make those desires go away? Could I be depressed and develop an anxiety disorder? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But is it because of my homosexual desires or is it because of the conflict between my desires and the social context? We, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, when it comes to sex, we, we suffer from what I call sexy, shiny object syndrome where we get distracted by sex and we want to blame sex for all of the problems. When in reality, sexuality is is a part of who we are and we can't separate the sexuality from the rest of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to understand um, our sexual desires within a bigger context. The other thing is that the we have to recognize that we actually don't know what normal sexuality is. Um, there's a, a researcher named Christian Joyal in Canada. He's one of my favorite researchers. And he did this study back in 2015 where they, they called up people randomly out of the phone book and they asked people um, they, whether they were interested in or had ever engaged in things like exhibitionism, voyeurism, sadism, masochism. They just called people <laughs> randomly up on the phone? Right. Yeah. If I got that phone call, I'd be like, what is happening? Yeah, I, I, I was always hoping I would get the call. <laughs> He's still waiting on his call. That's right. <laughs> so the fascinating thing was they found out that 50% of people reported an interest in one of these sexual desires that now exhibitionism, voyeurism, sadism, masochism, these are sexual disorders in the DSM that mm. we think are rare, uncommon, and usually unhealthy. 50% of a non-clinical population reported that they were interested in, that they had one or more of those desires. 30% of them had engaged in them. And interest in sexual masochism actually positively predicted life satisfaction. What? So these things that we think are really uncommon turns out Half of the people listening to your show, Lacey, or more, are have kinky interests. I think it's almost everyone that's listening. Yeah. Isn't that right? I know you're all kinksters out there. <laughs> don't be ashamed. Accept yourself. Accept yourself. And, but why don't we accept ourselves? Because we're taught we're the only one. 
We, and why do we think that? Because we keep our mouth shut. 90% of people never share their sexual fantasy with anybody, not their partner, mm -hmm. not their therapist, um, because we're afraid we're the only one. Right. The reality is it turns out that, you know, kinky sex is probably very normal. Yeah, very common. It's much more common than people think at the Absolutely. very least. What would you say to, I feel like when this kind of stuff gets brought up online, which, of course, the Internet is its own little hellhole and it's kind of its own <laughs> unique. I, I think you've called it a dumpster fire a time or two. Yes, definitely a dumpster fire. Um, I feel like when we talk about sexuality, like needing to accept sexuality and, you know, letting people come into their own. If you if you want to, you know, cross dress, be an exhibitionist, whatever it is, you like you should just do that and live your life. There's always a very vocal uh group that will come back and say this is degeneracy this is the decline of western culture you know the whole what? the whole line Lace, of Lacey what about the kids <laughs> oh what yeah about the children yeah think of the children you're harming the children and I think from what I understand and maybe you have some more insight to add to this from what I understand there is a fear of sort of our most primal states there's a you know, sex, giving into our sexual urges or desires puts us closer to our more animalistic selves. Mm -hmm. And Puritanism, you know, explicitly rejects the animalism in each of, in each of us, our animalistic urges. That's kind of a good thing when it comes to violence. Right. Right. We need to push that down. It's probably bad for society to just kill each other when we're mad. What would you say to people who think that this sort of uninhibited sexuality could be bad for society, too? When I work with people that struggle with anger and, and anger management, we teach them to accept and learn from their anger. We teach them not to hate themselves for being angry. Because the more you do, right, the more you the more you try and cut that part of that part out part of it out of yourself, the less control you have, right? So we we try to help people understand and learn from their anger. The same is true here. My argument is that this stems from a deep distrust of pleasure, and that we we view people who embrace pleasure as weak. That because think about it, like you know, uh, nuns and monks, right? Hermits who live in very austere environments, they give up hedonistic world pleasures mm -hmm. in service to connecting to a higher plane. The idea is that physical temptation and physical pleasure distracts us and gets in the way of connection with spiritual reality. We all have kind of an intuitive fear of things that feel too good. Mm. We fear that if it feels too good, we'll lose control and we won't be able to stop ourselves when we want to. And you are saying it's okay, you will be able to stop yourself because I, I, you I, have self-control. Exactly, it's like the, um, uh, what, you know, it, when 
it's like the Catholic schools that tell girls not to wear spaghetti strap dresses because their shoulders might trigger uncontrollable erotic behavior in the males, right? Mm -hmm. When we give guys that message, we're telling them they're not responsible to control themselves. Yeah, so much of the narrative really is about like, you don't have any control, so we need to impose it on you. (laughs) Instead, I like to point out, we actually do. Yeah. We actually can control ourselves. And the fact that you struggle sometimes to control yourself doesn't mean you can't and it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Um what I where where I go with these conversations now is there are aspects of sexuality and human behavior that are unhealthy and damaging. Um but let's start talking about how we figure those out. We used to identify whether sex was healthy or not by what it was. You know, heterosex sex was healthy, but homosex was unhealthy. Sex within marriage was healthy, but sex outside marriage was unhealthy. Um, Penis and vagina sex was healthy, but penis anywhere else sex was unhealthy. That's an act-based model of sexual health, saying it's what it is. But what if instead we start to think about how you do it? Um, because we can we can recognize that how you engage in sexual behavior affects how healthy it is or not. And so now we are starting to talk about a principle-based or a values-based model of sexual health. So then I ask people, well, how do you tell the difference between like good sex or healthy sex or right sex from bad sex? Now we start talking about things like consent. We, we think about honesty. We think about protection. We think about shared values. We think about mutuality, sex that isn't selfish. And we think about sex where we're not exploiting anybody. Mm-hmm. Those are the things now that I work with patients and I work with therapists that instead of changing what people do sexually, can we find a way to change how they do it, where they start to talk honestly and openly, where they, we teach people about consent, and we start teaching people how to be mutual partners in sex. First, it makes sex a lot more pleasurable, but secondly, now we can start reducing a lot of the shame, and, and we say, like, for instance, I mean, I, I had this, this one guy who came to me who was, you know, he was deeply afraid that he was addicted to pornography. He was deeply ashamed of his sexual desires. Mm-hmm. Um, he liked to watch pornography of, you know, um, pardon me, I hope it's okay to say, you know, face fucking with, with guys mm-hmm. you know, having kind of aggressive, rough oral sex with women. Um, and, and seeing a a girl with tears kind of running down her eyes or mascara kind of coming down her face during oral sex deeply turned him on. But he, he thought he was an awful person for having that desire. He'd grown up really feminist. He really respected women's rights. He thought the fact that that turned him on made him a rapist. Mm. And, and I said, you know, if you engage in that behavior without consent, then you're a rapist and then you're engaging in unhealthy sex. But what if you were able to find a woman who also found that behavior really sexy and erotic? Mm. Can we, you know, again, 
It's not what, it's how. Yeah, that makes sense. Instead of moralizing about specific acts. That's right. When we recognize that sexual diversity actually is the norm, when we recognize that, you know, the there are very, very healthy people out there who have some really disturbing and frightening sex fantasies, mm-hmm. it doesn't make them stop being healthy. Yeah. I, there was someone that wrote into my stream a few days ago. He was talking about how his girlfriend, he's a white guy, his girlfriend's a black woman, and she really, she is very submissive and wants to do BDSM stuff. And he's just very aware of the gender and racial dynamics and just feels really uncomfortable. And, you know, I I think there's some humanity in that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think people should shut off that feeling entirely. Like, you should kind of be aware of some of those dynamics, but also not let you know, still accepting yourself and kind of seeing sex. It's almost like the bedroom is sort of this realm beyond. Like, you can't apply politics and Mm -hmm. political correctness and all this stuff to sex. It just doesn't work because that's not how sex is. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) And we get more of that suppressing again, you know. That's right. And and shaming people for, you know, for having um, interracial sex fantasies, for instance, um, um, or same-sex fantasies. All it does is drive it underground, um, mm. make it more difficult to control, make it more scary. Um, you know, within it, it, there's a big discussion about you know race issues in pornography and in sex, yeah. um, and and the reality is our the racial issues in our sex fantasy reflect the racial issues in our society. We're not going to make the racial issues in our society go away by trying to get rid of them in sex. It goes the other way. It goes, what do you mean by that? It goes the other way. That if we were a society that didn't have any struggles with racism, we would have very few people who had racially charged sexual fantasies. Oh, I see. Like it's a, it's a outgrowth of the racial issues in again it's society. a symptom not a cause it's a symptom not a cause right right um what do you think about the conversation about racial fetishization um this is something that i see not really i mean i think porn is a valid conversation about that but i see it come up with dating apps too where people you know specifically point out what races they'll date um and maybe have some stereotypes about, you know, Asian women, black women, things like that. What do you make of that? How do we navigate that in a way that respects, you know, people's humanity and treats them with dignity? I think it's critical that we teach people to embrace respect and dignity, those lovely words you just used, as they approach sexual relationships with other people that they treat their sexual partners and potential sex partners as humans with feelings. Um, But at the same time, we have to recognize that people actually don't have conscious control over the the things that they find sexually arousing. That we don't get to choose what kind of flavor sex really turns us on. I equate it to, you know, food taste that, you know, I like salty food. My, my wife likes sweet food more. She doesn't shame me for liking sweet food or salty food. And I don't shame her for liking sweet food. 
We don't, we didn't choose. It's just the way we were made. Right. So even if you like buy into stereotypes, I guess, I mean, should you do anything about that? Should, should you challenge that? <laughs> I, well, I query that rather than what I, what I do in therapy and, and, and in my writing, I ask people to think about their sexuality when they're not turned on. Remember, when we are turned on, most <laughs> of our brain kind of turn off. Some of our critical thinking turns off. Yeah. So I ask people, how do you feel about your sexual fantasies? What do you think the pornography that turns you on means about them? Do you think that you know your sexual desires say something about the kind of person you are? As a young therapist, I mean, I was trained in a dynamic kind of model, more psychodynamic and a Freudian model, where, you know, my one of my mentors told me, you know, David, by the third session, you should know what a what, what a patient fantasizes and masturbates to. So, you know, doggone it, every third session, I'd say, you know, hey, it's time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's lay it all out on the table. <laughs> but in reality, what my what my mentor was telling me was that by the third session, I should have enough of a psychological understanding of this person to understand what they would react to sexually mm. from a personality basis. Now, mm. the, ba the model there, so, so like, you know, the, the idea there was, well, a person who, you know, really is starved for attention would masturbate to fantasies of being on stage, right, and, and being watched. Mm. Because the idea was that sexual fantasies and sexual arousal is connected to our personality, our needs, and our psychological issues. But are they? We don't know. Hmm. There really actually right now is absolutely little to no kind of information or clear understanding of how and why people end up with some of the sexual fantasies they do. Justin, yeah. Justin Lay Miller is a, a dear friend of mine. He has a lovely book called Tell Me What You Want. And, and it's about sexual fantasy and, and, his, and his research around this. And he found, you know, interestingly, that Republicans tend to fantasize more about cuckolding and infidelity. Uh -huh. Democrats tend to fantasize more about BDSM. And the interesting thing in both of those is that, you know, Democrats fantasizing about power dynamics. Wait a minute. I thought Democrats are supposed to be very egalitarian. <laughs> they are fantasizing about the thing that, that is naughty. Yeah. Same is true in Republicans. They're fantasizing about the thing that is taboo. Uh -huh. so the more we tell people this is naughty and bad, you should sure get that. <laughs> So with racial stereotypes, does that mean that like the more we shame people who fantasize about, you know, stereotypical stuff, the, the hotter it gets, the more alluring it, the more allure it has? Probably. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. The, the you know, the, I, I, it's funny, I was just filming this um, documentary about uh, porn star Peter North. Um who uh, is famous for like large volume of ejaculate. And, <laughs> and he, um, and, and one of the things we talked about was, you know, during the 1980s was really when the money shot in pornography became a staple. Why? Mm. 
during the 1980s, semen and unprotected sex was deadly and frightening and you mm. shouldn't do it. And so it started popping up more and more and more in pornography because it was naughty and because uh -huh. it was very stimulating and arousing because of that. Yeah, the same thing with anal sex too, right? It's all about the forbidden fruit when it comes to sex. Exactly. And But you're... Um, Let's say your idea about a more sexually accepting open society, wouldn't that sort of take away all those taboos? Yeah, it'd be boring as fuck. <laughs> so you just want a sexually boring future? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe new taboos would arise. I'm sure there will always be taboos. Yeah, I, there there will always be taboos. I mean, it's a never-ending feast. There's always going to be some new thing and there's always going to be some new technology that everybody is screaming you know chicken little the sky is falling the world is ending this new technology is gonna whatever the world um that fear is always going to be there i guess you know the and you talked about the media and and the people those 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 prominent folks that are out there talking about sex panic they're feeding on sexual anxiety um, and they're creating sexual anxiety in people because it's a great way to manipulate them. Mm -hmm. And it's a great way to get them to, to buy your shit. Um, right. I guess that, that explains the Dr. Drew phenomenon. Some of that. I mean, it's funny. I have a somewhat long relationship with Dr. Drew, and, and he and I have talked about me being on his show many times to talk about these issues. And uh, for some reason, he's never followed through, um, never really been willing to have a public discussion about the, about the real science here. Yeah, he, I mean, he's talked very publicly about sex addiction, so yeah, he probably doesn't want to be challenged by you. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some of that. Um, I think that, but but the nice thing is that the you know the field is moving beyond this. I mean, um, the sex addiction itself has been rejected scientifically as a concept now repeatedly multiple organizations clinical organizations in the united states and around the world are saying look there's no science here these people need help but they need help with the real issue they need help with the moral conflict they need help with the um, sexual desires homosexuality or kink that they have that they want to not have they need help with the anxiety or the depression that is causing these sexual struggles most behavioral addictions get better on their own without treatment and people who are healthier and have more well-adjusted lives don't struggle with those issues. It means that these behavior problems that we call sex addiction or behavior addiction, whatever, they're an adjustment disorder. They are us struggling to adjust to something in our life and it's coming out in this kind of problem behavior. That problem behavior is a symptom. We need to treat the people. All right. Thank you so much for joining me for that wild ride, my dears. That was Dr. David Lay. Do check out his work if you'd like to learn more about sex addiction and sexual shame. And I will see you next time.